IndieWire uh, posted their 25 best movies of 2019 video uh, that oh, uh, no. their credit, their, their critic uh, or their, uh, I don't know if, like how senior he is in the, uh, w- w- on the outlet, but uh, David Ehrlich, who I, I name drop quite a bit. Um, he does this annual video where he, it's actually like the previous iterations are always very well edited. He does this, uh, this very kind of, evocative mix of music and uh, clips from all the movies that have uh, come out over the past year. And it's always uh, very good choices. I, I, I found myself like agreeing with a lot of the the rankings that he gave. Mm-hmm. So what's number one? Number one is uh, A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Okay. I am kind of disappointed that I got tickets to that for Biff, eh? Oh, yeah. And I just, I wasn't feeling it that night. And I decided not to go, which turned out oh. to be a really bad decision. I had heard like good buzz before and I didn't know what it was about, but it's essentially an LGBTQ movie about two women who fall in love. Yeah. in like the and 18th century or something, right? Exactly. Yeah. So a woman's hired to do a portrait of another woman who is betrothed to this aristocrat and she doesn't want to have any part of it. And so the artist and the subject of the painting end up falling in love, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, it just wasn't really up my alley. So I kind of skipped it, which now in retrospect was a terrible decision, but it seems like there's a very little consensus this year, which I find interesting. And we can talk about the globes a little bit because there are some really big snubs and some really odd choices yeah so let's uh well we'll we'll get into that as soon as we uh get through with our intro there so stay tuned for that Welcome to the 63rd episode of the Extra Buddy Podcast, a free-flowing conversation between two guys who love TV and movies. My name is Jason Chen, coming from Vancouver, and joining me is my host in Toronto, Robert Snow. Today we're going to talk about Knives Out, Marriage Story, and Watchmen, so stay tuned. But before we get to that, Golden Globes. What was the biggest snub for you? I think uh, The Farewell, or specifically uh, Lulu Wang not getting a nomination for Best Director for The Farewell. I think that was... Or any female director. Yeah. Like, what is Todd Phillips doing there? I, I really don't know. I mean, now, I mean, I think we, we talked about how much I hate the Golden Globes uh, this time last year, <laughs> you know, when the nominations came out. I don't... I really... I find it amusing. I really don't understand why this one award show... And I'm sure there's somebody who's far more well-schooled in the art of like Hollywood history that uh, can explain this to me. But uh, if you're out there, please do. Why is it that this one award show that uh, whose awards are chosen by a group of like 80 or 90 foreign journalists uh, in Hollywood gets this big gala, gets all this media attention, uh, and we're left like talking about their wacko choices in terms of like category division <laughs> and, um, you know, None, none of the picks, well, very few of the picks, I would say, end up having any bearing on the rest of the awards races. It's they're just kind of it's it's such a strange outlier of a contest, and even the the telecast is like a bit of a gong show every year because the uh, the guests are allowed to, to drink at their tables. So usually, like the speeches and the um, you know uh, sometimes even the hosts are like half in the can, but. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think that's the whole point. Like, I guess it's such I, a joke of an award show that people get hammered and just yeah. have a good time. I, I, that's part of the appeal to me. I'm less interested in the winners. I can't even tell you who's nominated year in and year out. Um, but I, I think there's something to be said about Hollywood um, people just letting loose a little bit because I find the Oscars a very uppity and uptight sort of yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, ceremony. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I th- I just thought it was interesting. Um, some of the choices they made, baffling, sure, a little interesting. Yeah, but you're right. Like like Todd Phillips, like you know, if this were a normal directing contest, like something at the the Oscars, admittedly, it also has its faults. You know, everyone points that out. But to have a ca- a directing category that's like five white dudes is a very boring and very like five years ago. Well, not even just five white dudes. I'm generally okay with just five of the best directors. And if they happen to be five white men, then so be it. But clearly this year, yeah. it's not the best five directors are not five white guys. Yeah. I think the ladies totally got snubbed. Uh, Lulu Wong, as you said. But at the same time, like, if you were to make a case for Todd Phillips, I don't know if you can make a really strong one in general. Like, the Joker, yes, it it's very culturally significant in the sense that this is an R-rated movie that's done so well box office-wise. But as a movie, as a message, yeah, as a think piece... I don't think it does anything else that we haven't seen before. I, I think I think it's very derivative. Yeah, yeah, and you could like, you know, what he's doing with the, you know, the Scorsese movies that he's referencing and, and the other like 70s stuff um, and 80s stuff. Um, I th- There's some people out there who kind of point out, pointed out when the, the Joker came out that, uh, you know, based on Todd Phillips' experience with uh, the Hangover movies where they're kind of like, one person point said, they're kind of ugly, small movies where not a whole lot happens and, you know, uh, bad behavior is celebrated <laughs> and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and in a similar way, like Joker kind of shares some of that worldview. Um, so in that sense, like maybe there's some artistry on the go there, but I, I still don't feel like, yeah, I feel like you could swap any number of other directors of Todd Phillips kind of caliber into that role on that movie and you would get a similar product. Yeah, I think so. And my, my initial gut reaction was, wasn't this a guy who made one hit comedy and then did two sequels that were basically beat for beat the same goddamn thing? Exactly. So I'm not surprised that the Joker, I think in its entirety, lacked a lot of imagination. Um, But speaking of directors who have a lot of imagination, Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. Are you baiting me, detective? Attempting to be thorough so we can figure out the manner of death. You mean if someone killed him? You think one of us, one of his family, killed him? Mr. Blanc, I just buried my father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I suspect... Foul play. I have eliminated no suspects. Basically, we started talking about uh, the uh, the conversation started on Twitter about the Golden Globes, and we we ended up moving it off of the prying eyes of the internet and just into a Facebook Messenger thread. But we were talking with our our friend Robin, uh, who's been on the show before, and just talking about like, Star Wars because, of course, that will be the the main topic of uh, the next episode, the final episode of this year, um, yeah. but about, you know, Ryan Johnson yep. and uh, who, what he's like as a director and more of that Last Jedi backlash kind of stuff. But I, I mean, I am 
steadily becoming, if I wasn't already, a Ryan Johnson fanboy. You definitely love The Last Jedi. <laughs> uh, and I love Knives Out. I got to say it. I, I gave it like five out of five on Letterboxd. I had a great time. I can't think of of any real gaping holes in that movie. Well, we should add that this is a spoiler heavy episode yes yeah that's so, true. so if you haven't seen knives out just turn this off and watch it and then come back and listen to us don't forget that or skip ahead use our handy timestamps that we put into the uh, the show notes of these episodes exactly exactly yeah we'll, we'll let you know um but i gave it four and a half on letterboxd and the only reason i gave that was because the ending i felt felt a little short mm. i think the process the actual investigation itself um the whole plot up until the last 20 minutes when Daniel Craig's character kind of cracks open the case. I think all that was fantastic. I I loved it. It was very much, as everyone else described it, a very much an Agatha Christie type whodunit. Uh, A lot of elements of Clue because the characters and the settings are so self-contained. It all basically takes place in one sort of mansion in Massachusetts. Yeah. Usually with these whodunits, they nail down they come down with the hammer pretty fast and hard. I didn't get the sense in this movie, but again, I don't think they really needed it because... Now by hammer, do you mean like the solution or... Yeah, yeah, the solution, like the ultimate reveal. Right. And partly because of the way the movie structured that we kind of have an idea of what happened because we already have a prime suspect, what is it, like 20 minutes into the movie... Yeah, maybe a bit uh, longer, but yeah, there's yeah, like, a, like there's that. a working theory that that seems very strong and very believable, and it for a while it kind of feels like Johnson is trying to subvert the typical like uh, Agatha Christie exactly. plotting it, by kind of like oh it's it's also key he's kind of taking a a bit of a a thing from Alfred Hitchcock's Rope where the the mystery is revealed and then the question is like how do we get to that point or how do the investigators get there yeah and there's a there's several scenes in there where christopher Plummer, who's the murder victim is playing with knives and he's sort of making a reference to knives yeah um which obviously lends to the title and the murder weapon itself but there's a scene at the end where chris evans's character grabs one from his wheel of knives which is really cool by the way yeah i would like have that in my house i think do you if i had enough space i would yeah <laughs> that, that, that thing was super cool and he goes and tries to stab anadorama and it's a fake knife yeah and that just kind of kind of threw me for a loop like it felt kind of gimmicky like i know he's trying to subvert expectations but that in that moment felt cheap because everything else in the movie was so carefully plotted out. It's like all of a sudden you have this element that comes into play that changes kind of everything. And you're kind of stuck wondering, well, why? I I see your point. I mean, you know, it uh, goes from the movie goes from having like very deadly stakes to kind of having a bit of a joke uh, worked into this climactic moment. But I, I also think that's kind of that that's still in keeping with the overall tone of it because we aren't dealing with like a a very super serious whodunit it there's elements of comedy elements of satire of the genre in other parts of the movie too you know where like Keith Stanfield who plays a police detective who who's kind of uh, the you know the local police officer who's helping with Daniel Craig's 
private investigation. You know, he he points out after a bit of a car chase, he's like, well, that was the lamest car chase ever. <laughs> it's very um, self-referential. Yeah. Yeah. So like those are the the kind of uh, uh, fake out with the the false knife at the end kind of feels like it's it's more part of that uh, observational kind of bit of the movie. Mm-hmm, right. But it's kind of like in a gunfight where all of a sudden, like the main character has one last bullet or, you know, they fire and it's empty all of a sudden at the most inopportune time. Yeah, there's somebody behind them who like uh, kills them right before they can fire the killing blow or something. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that's how it felt to me. Right. But otherwise, I really loved it. I really think that this movie in this sea of like genre bending above average movies it's gonna get nominated for something because it deserves to be sure yeah i mean it's got the it's got the fact that it's like an original story i mean granted it's based on a somewhat original yeah, yeah. i mean it's, yeah. it's based on a uh on a very like familiar uh genre and formula but the fact that it's like it's not based on a novel it's not based on any pre-existing ip um which is something we really don't see all that often these days um, and it's got uh, such a great balance of uh, character. You know, it, it, yes. it, despite having an ensemble cast, they keep it. They keep the majority of the storytelling t- uh, centered around like three or four main characters, and they don't get distracted with too many uh, subplots. Right. And I, I would, you know, pay a lot of money to see a Benoit Blanc sort of like mystery uh spin-off netflix it, it, show or, yeah or like another movie even because i think i think he's a a very funny character i think daniel craig does a really good job with it i think he's better than kenneth brano's or uh, hercule Poirot, to be honest i agree yeah yeah he's, he's bringing more to the table or at least more into like new yes, stuff i agree and it's just the character himself is just a lot more interesting i think the performance was better he's far more charismatic i want to say it belongs in the best picture category but I'm not convinced that this sort of genre really endears itself to critics and the Academy itself. I'd be kind of surprised if it got nominated for Best Picture, but I wouldn't be surprised if it got nominated for, like, Best Original Screenplay. Yeah, it's got um, that costuming. vibe to it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it feels a little too, I don't want to say, like, shallow, but it just feels like a really good time, feel-good movie that you kind of go see your family. And these kind of kind of movies where they don't really have a particular message, um, political or social, I don't think it just captures the Academy's attention like something like the freaking Green Book does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's those social message movies, you know, they are the ones that, that tend to pick up the best picture, uh, first the nominations and usually the the actual award too. Um, but I mean, exactly. I think, you know, as good as this movie is and as, as like, you know, if I were the only person choosing the best picture, um, nominees, let's say there was like (laughs) your dream world. Yeah. If, if there were like eight or 10, you know, which just seems to be the number that, uh, the category has kind of settled on over the past few years, I would put it in there, Uh you know, if I were the one picking it, you know, I would, uh, it's, it's probably going to end up on my top 10 of the year. So me too, you know, for me, uh, it, even though it won't it may not go home with like the big gold as it were you know uh, i think it it would deserve it in an ideal world i think we also talked about how ryan johnson's very good and very eager about subverting expectations and i kind of wrote this in my review so even if you were kind of turned off by the last jedi which i was this is the perfect genre for him yeah because it it forces you to twist and turn and question everything you know 
So this is like the perfect vehicle for him. He can also kind of like, now that he's kind of established, you know, the guys, he's got a Star Wars movie under his belt. He's got this one, which is performing pretty well. I mean, he can assemble the kinds of like really great casts that can make material like this, that can kind of elevate this material, right? Um, And gives you a reason to go. By the way, Anna Dharma is having a killer couple years right now. Yeah, and she's set to have like a killer uh, like 2020 from what I can tell. Yeah, she's just like nonstop working, but not even that. Like, it, they're really big budget, big name productions that are getting a lot of positive buzz. Yeah. And she her performance was really good. I was kind of skeptical to begin with, but she's she's got that like big-eyed sort of innocent look to her. But there's an edge under there too. Like she... Uh, there is. That's why you kind of question it, right? Because... Yeah, you can you can see it coming out when, when her character feels threatened by the family and, you know, and she's kind of... She's got her back against the wall and that's when the knives come yeah. out. Ooh. And at one point she even lies to the detectives, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So she's got this like gag reflex that forces her to be a very reliable narrator but she's not reliable in the eyes of the other characters in the film, including the detectives who are basically responsible for drawing all the conclusions. I thought that was a very clever element to have when you have a straight shooter, because a lot of these whodunits, the one of the pitfalls is that none of the characters are reliable. So at the end, this sort sort of like does ex machina sort of like solution comes forth. And you're like wondering like, where was this like two hours ago? Right. So Knives Out is a is the type of movie where I'm really eager to see it again because I'm pretty positive when I watch it the second time, I could pick out all the things that cue in or clue into who actually, you know, murdered Christopher Plummer. Well, speaking of like films that really catch the Academy's attention, Marriage Marriage Story is like right up their alley. Getting a divorce, Mom. You can't be friends with him anymore. Gina! Charlie Bird! <laughs> Mom! <laughs> Mom! What? You know, most people in my business, you just transactions to them. I like to think of you as people. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> you remind me of myself on my second marriage. Noah Baumbach, Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson, your trifecta with the direct with like the indie director and the two leads, and it's just acting, right? Yeah. If you throw in Laura Dern and Ray Liotta in there, as who are, by the way, the biggest scene stealers in that film. Big time, um, yeah. Yeah, and you have, like, uh, domestic problems, um, screaming matches, emotional highs and lows. This is just, like, perfect. I wouldn't be surprised if this, by the time we get to the award season, like the Academy's, uh, in February, I wouldn't be surprised if this movie got a lot of steam. Oh, yeah. And certainly in like all the big categories, I mean, this could be Adam Driver's year for best actor. It could be, I don't know that it's uh, Scarlett Johansson's year, but you know, no. she might get a nomination at least. Um, it's, I think she deserves it. It's a, yeah, I, mean, I liked her in it. Um, and it, so the story follows a, a couple who were introduced to in the beginning with uh, kind of d- dueling voiceovers. Uh, set over like very kind of idyllic family kind of footage where you see Adam Driver plays it plays a uh, successful uh, independent theater director and playwright in New York and he's married to a successful actor played by Scarlett Johansson together they have this young son and they when we first are introduced to them it seems like they have a very like strong communication as a as a couple and they they share their parenting duties equally and all these things but uh, then we kind of smash cut to the fact that 
this sequence that opens the movie is actually them reflecting in couples therapy on uh, the things that they value about each other. But apparently the couples therapy isn't going very well because not too long after that, we discover that they're starting proceedings uh, to get divorced. And they come into this uh, this divorce with all the best intentions in the world. They want to make it as easy as possible on their son. They want to try to live close to each other. They don't want to involve lawyers. They want to try to like work out something. But uh, the movie kind of shows how even people with the best intentions in a difficult situation can be sort of radicalized or polarized even further by everything that goes into getting a divorce and they slowly start to drift further and further apart things get more acrimonious until we get to like a very uh explosive uh final proceedings where you know full custody is up in uh, up in the air and uh you know both parents are kind of wrestling with their decisions yeah and a lot of uh people will talk about how the performances really drive this film and i totally 100 percent agree with them um i think if you didn't have driver and johansson putting in the performance they did this is just a very infuriating movie <laughs> about white middle upper class people and their stupid fights and their stupid divorces yes yeah bombach i think for a while um didn't really get the praise um he did when he did um the squid and the whale which is I, in my opinion, a superior movie, but I think in this one, he's going to get a lot of praise for it because with the way he directs, Adam Driver, I think, talked about um, the sort of the intensity that, that was required in this film. Mm -hmm. And granted, there are quite a few um, funny scenes, but for a talky movie, it's pretty intense emotionally at times. Yeah, especially this big uh, blow up that Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson's characters have about like two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the movie where the you one start where he to get, pounds the wall yeah you start to get like yeah. really worried that something really bad's gonna happen um and but but it is like like you were saying there are moments of levity in it to the point where i actually found myself laughing a whole lot more than i expected <laughs> and it's probably like it's probably the funniest movie about divorce well like with like divorce is the main kind of plot point um that I've ever seen. Oh, and okay. Not having not having gone through like any kind of divorce in my family, uh, like on a real personal level, um, I don't have a huge amount of like uh, investment in it. But uh, even then, I I could find myself kind of relating to the the bureaucratic nightmare that this thing seems to be, and how just how like easy it is to kind of lose a grip on what you're trying to do it is different from other breakup movies in the sense that the two characters don't really have like um new boyfriend slash girlfriend that become sort of the focus of the film either no. um it's generally just about them two and their relationship and how they basically uh continue their lives after they get divorced um so that's pretty interesting actually now that you mention it um because most breakup movies just involve like uh, the husband and the wife, the divorcees, sort of entering like a new, perhaps even better, usually better part of their lives. And this ne isn't necessarily the case for Marriage Story, which helps in its realism. I don't know if it actually is an uplifting movie. No, well, I think it's bittersweet, you know, because you see how... Yeah, bittersweet, You yeah. see how, like, you know, they did have a very strong relationship at first, and I'm sure lots of people can identify with that, where, you know, uh, one relationship or another might have lasted for 
uh, five years, 10 years or even more. And then all of a sudden it just kind of didn't make sense anymore. And uh, I think a lot of people can identify with that, whether they were married or not. And you see how even uh, when the relationship is fully over, how bits of their lives are still kind of entwined, you know, like uh, you see how Adam Driver's character is really uh, beloved by Scarlett Johansson's character's family. You know, he has a great relationship with his now former mother-in-law and she gives him this huge hug on the same day that she's supposed to help deliver him with the actual divorce papers, Mm -hmm. serve him with the papers. Um, And you see how like uh, even with taking their family out of the picture, you know, Scarlett Johansson's character, she gets all these new job opportunities, including like some very promising work uh, in uh, the kind of streaming TV type of world. And there's a bit, there's some f- a few funny like industry digs about like how uh, how much work there is, but how weird and high concept uh, TV has become. Right. Uh, so there's there's some like self some very like industry humor in there too with that that I really appreciate. Well, well, industry lawyers too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, with how like these two really high power lawyers represent celebrities and they're pitting them the the two clients against each other and just kind of like the cutthroat attitude that they have exactly and they're kind of like casually cutthroat too eh? oh yeah it's just like this is how it is in la yeah deal with it um laura dern was especially amazing but and ray liotta do you think she's gonna get best uh, supporting actress for that uh, performance mm. like she has that she has that speech in her in her character's office where that is the clip that they'll play when she wins yeah I if mean, she wins well what's her competition first of all i think she deserves a nomination probably a lot but yeah, yeah. The, but her screen time is quite limited in that film um even though she s- steals every single scene and alan alan alda too right he plays uh, adam driver's first lawyer so he he was really good too i think it'd be tough to say if she does get nominated i don't see her winning mm. um just because the role itself i don't think was meaty enough um, very rarely do you have an actor or actress win with limited screen time. I always come back to uh, Silence of the Lambs, but I don't think any role since then has won for what roughly 15 minutes of screen time yeah it's almost like the the, it's always the roles that are kind of like challenging the the best actor or best actress for um, for like prominence in the story right it feels like can we talk about scarlett johansson's performance too for a sec um just because i find her pretty wooden and cold and i thought she was perfect for this role because she was wooden and cold because i didn't find her particularly wooden but not wooden not wooden but definitely cold okay and definitely someone who gives off the the vibe that she's like totally hollywood this movie is like maybe the first time in a long time that I haven't seen her in some sort of like big box office type of thing. So, um, you know, great, you know, with uh, Lost in Translation being kind of right, fair I, enough to my mind, like the last time she had a, a big like indie movie role like this with this kind of like critical appraisal and popularity and stuff like that. Have you seen um, Under the Skin? Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's sort of in between, too. But um, well, she plays an alien and it like the wooden aspect of her acting worked true. really well for that yeah. role, too. So, I mean, maybe it's just kind of the the characters that she feels most at home playing. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I I've never disliked her in anything. Um, I I don't particularly connect with Black Widow uh, when, no. you know, with that character in the Marvel movies, uh, although the, the trailer for the new standalone movie 
kind of changes my mind a little bit. She's like terrifically boring action hero, Black Widow. Yes. So, uh, and Grant, and I'm probably more interested in that movie for David Harbour and Florence Pugh, honestly, but whatever. Of course. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get closer to that movie coming out. But uh, the, no, I, I think that she is, she's uh, well cast here and, uh, you know, she, she definitely leaves an impression, even if that impression is of a person who, I don't know, has a hard time being warm towards people or is a bit manipulative or yeah. something like that. She's, she, you do get the sense that she's a little uppity. Yeah. And, you know, there's some of the, again, getting back to like those industry digs, like some of the, uh, the scenes where they kind of depict the very high minded artsy fartsy stuff that her character was doing in New York with this like <laughs> yeah. production of, uh, one of the, uh, I think it's like, a Electra or one of those Greek, uh, tragedies uh where they're all the actors are kind of like carrying her in this choreographed dance and there's all this like howling yeah uh, avant-garde music and stuff like that like i found that pretty funny but yeah because it's like it's making fun of theater and it's a lot of like interpretive dancing that's just um sort of being lampooned because Adam Driver is one of those, like, he plays one of those crazy directors where, like, he'll make someone make someone do something 50 times and then all of a sudden be like, nope, not good enough. I'm going to change it completely. Yes. Yeah. And, oh, and, and a shout out to Wallace Shawn, who, you know, had, doesn't do movies very often. I mean, he, people will remember him from uh, The Princess Bride. Uh, he's pretty much exclusively, like, working in theater these days. But he pops up as, like, this veteran member of Adam Driver's uh, character's mm-hmm. theater troupe. And he just gets all these weird... Uh, off-putting one-liners and strange comments that uh, that again feels like a a very um, sharp observation of the types of people that you find in the theater world. I agree. I think that's probably more um, funny to you because you've actually worked and been in the theater world. Yeah, I did did some like community theater back in the day. So yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. I've, I feel like I I know some of these people. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that there are certain stereotypes that come with um, stage theater oh, people. Yeah, yeah more, for sure. More so than like film actors. I, th- I think they're just like two completely different breeds. Yeah. And well, it, it takes a certain level of like uh, a, a certain type of person to kind of like put yourself out there in these like tiny productions with no money and just kind of yeah, like I agree. try to try to scratch out a living. Yeah. Just closing thoughts on marriage story. Like it, it played very briefly in theaters. Uh, it's on Netflix now. So uh, we highly recommend you check it out uh, in advance of the, the nominations and the award season ramping up. Cause I feel like it's going to, uh, it's going to start to build ahead of steam, but you know what is good though? Watchmen. Yes. I love you. We just met. When did you fall in love with me? I, was already in love with you. Before you even saw me? I don't experience the concept of before. So, there's no moment? Moment? A moment when you realize I'm in love. This is the moment. So uh, I haven't been watching any of this, so I'm just going to uh, try to go like as as light on spoilers as you can. Because <laughs> well, I, I do feel like I'm I do feel like I'm going to circle back and watch this one because I, I keep hearing fantastic things about. Yeah, it. you have to. Um, just because Damon Lindelof is a guy who tends to write a lot, he has a lot of interesting ideas. They just never go anywhere, and he just kind of leaves you hanging. But this season of Watchmen, which he intended to be just a one-off is very well plotted out. There are things that happen in the beginning few episodes where you kind of wonder what direction he's going, but the payoff is there. 
so that's good. Right. So we are at episode eight, which aired last uh, December eighth on a Sunday, and we are one episode away from, or we we the next episode is the finale. Mm. We're quickly wrapping things up, and I don't want to give too many things away, but I will say that even if I told you some elements of the plot in this most recent episode, it wouldn't even make sense anyway, because you really have to start from the beginning because so much of the story revolves around things that have happened in the 20 years since the attack on New York. Oh yeah. Uh, Things revolve around Adrian Veidt, Ozymandias, who is this like really mysterious character who has like an army of clones and I won't say anything more than that. <laughs> yeah, and he, he, it's funny the way he treats them. And then there's also um, Dr. Manhattan, who, as we all know, experiences time differently from every other character. He is both the past, present, and future. And I think the show did a really good job, especially the most recent episode, of really showcasing that. I think mm. it takes a lot of skill to move so seamlessly between so many different eras and point of views as we talked with Robin, this show is really bold in its politics in its depiction Mm. of white versus black in its depiction of racism in turning some of the most sort of common thoughts we have about vigilantes and the people underneath their mask and turning it on their head. I don't think it's very heavy handed so far. I think a lot of the themes that he has in this um, season involving you know conflict and love and alternate history really manages to inhabit the world that the original creators of Watchmen uh, Gibbons and Moore had envisioned. I know Alan Moore has sort of become, for good reason, become a bit of a curmudgeon, a bit of a staunch critic of all the superhero stuff that's going on right now. I don't know. I feel like if he really gave this series a chance i think he would see some value in it because it goes just beyond just the basic good versus evil arguments that we get in a lot of these superhero tv shows right and it seems like the you know um there's always been an element an extra element of commentary in the Watchmen universe and uh yes. you know there's uh, i think we were talking about this when you first when you first started watching the show um there's a pretty big burden on this show to kind of you know, not just do what the both the movie and the comic did, but kind of extend it in a way that makes sense. That's right. That's right. The My only gripe is that there's a character in the show, Jane Crawford, and she's the wife of a police chief. And she's played by Frances Fisher, who to me looks a lot like uh, the woman who plays Lori Lori Blake, Jean Smart. They both got that pale skin, uh, big eyes, and they got the curly... Um, sort of strawberry blonde locks going on oh, and yeah. there, there's a scene where they're sitting face to face and Lori Blake aka uh, Silk Spectre is kind of interrogating her and presenting her this theory of what she thinks has happened in, uh, throughout the events of the show and I'm sitting there I'm thinking these are just like mirror characters of each other and not only that I didn't feel that Gene Smart really relates to the Silk Spectre I know I have to say, though, the Silk Spectre I know more intimately is the one from Zack Snyder's film. Oh, yeah, the uh, Malin Ackerman. Yes, Malin Ackerman and Carla Gugino um, from the movie. So I'm less um, familiar with the Silk Spectre in the comics, but there's a 
and and the show itself is based more on the comic than the movie, although it, it acknowledges some of the stuff that's happened in the movie. I just think that there is a bit of a disconnect there. Um, but we'll have to see in the final episode what happens because I, there are so many questions I had throughout the viewing of the show that Lindelof manages to answer. So that's where the payoff comes. It's not that's like good. Lost yeah. or even... Uh, Prometheus it was right where he he just wrote a bunch of stuff <laughs> see what stuck on the wall yeah. and just kind of left it yeah <laughs> and you're going what the hell man so maybe maybe he does do that in the season finale um I hope not I have I'm very optimistic because so far the show has been so good yeah and like um now that to me this seems like the first superhero show or vigilante show uh that it has is getting like serious attention from critics and like the industry uh, more broadly. I mean, it, it kind of feels like the first one of these uh, for, uh, TV shows in this genre that might like be a contender for some Emmys. Oh, maybe because you know, like other superhero shows that we've seen recently, like big superhero shows. We had the the Marvel's Defender um, series, you know, uh, Daredevil and uh, Luke Cage and all those. Yeah, it was only half of it was good. Those were the first time that we were seeing like big superhero shows on a platform like Netflix get a lot of critical attention. And, you know, meanwhile, the CW has been doing their thing with the the Flash and the Arrowverse and all that stuff. But but all of those those shows seem like they're more kind of like uh, entertainment, very family friendly, uh, deliberately cheesy kind of that they're very self-aware with like the low budgets and that kind of stuff and admittedly they get a lot of uh, a lot of mileage uh for their low budgets but uh no this seems like the first time that there's like a big prestige show in the superhero genre that's kind of uh getting this kind of like yeah this is actually like top tier television kind of thing exactly and i keep going back to episode six i think it was that's just incredible tv where they reveal the origins of hooded justice which is something that riffs off the original comic and and film because hooded just like the identity of hooded justice and the first miniman was always kind of never really discussed yeah doesn't he usually that character just kind of appear in like old photos yeah so they're, they're rumors um and stories about him hooded justice being gay with captain metropolis and how he was maybe an ex-wrestler and blah 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 but this show actually just takes it to a whole nother level and creates this whole canon i guess it would be canon um of the real hooded justice but hbo is really great because it's not bound to a lot of the cable tv rules in regards to like violence um, social commentary. So HBO can really push the boundaries. Just as Watchmen, the the graphic novel, really pushed boundaries when it was first published. So HBO is, I think, the perfect vehicle. And all the other specialty cables too, like Showtime, Stars, whatever. These shows can do things that a lot of other quote-unquote mainstream and generic superhero shows just cannot. Yeah. A lot of these made-TV CW-type superhero shows they throw you a villain that who's clearly evil. Maybe he's an interesting villain because his goals are somewhat noble, kind of like Thanos. Um, but at the end of the day, it boils down to good versus evil. Whereas in HBO and Watchmen, it really makes you question what makes a good person or what makes uh, a person um, a good per- a good guy, so to speak, in the fight against evil. Yeah, and that's exactly like you know. It, I- 
if you think about the last time that HBO got lots of like great critical notices in a in a kind of like geeky or fantasy type of zone, and that was Game of Thrones, you know, when it was at its high point. And again, that I think one of the reasons that show hit big in the way that it did uh, at the time that it did was it presented a more geeky property, a fantasy property in those shades of gray and didn't didn't go too much on the like black and white uh you know very simplistic uh dichotomy between the characters speaking of the show by the way regina king not getting nominated is like a travesty i think she's so good she's clearly the heart and soul of this show she does so much as both um, a mass vigilante and as a mother and as a wife and she she plays so many different roles in that in this series and she knocks it out of the park I'm really disappointed that this show wasn't acknowledged more at the Golden Globes but hopefully that changes soon yeah so I'm saying you know if you're talking if you're gonna be talking about TV you might as well be talking about the Emmys because I don't this mm-hmm. Globes business I just <laughs> you just can't get over it. No. <laughs> I just find it amusing. I, I think it's so funny that it's all over the place. And it's so predictable, too. Like, I was thinking, I was looking this up today. It's like, in the past 20 years, only four times have female directors been nominated. And twice it was Catherine Bigelow. And the other one, Sofia Coppola for Lost in Translations. And the other one's Ava DuVernay for Selma. Right. Right. So it has a history of being like this. And you, you you just hope that over time that they kind of rectify this situation <laughs> because. Well, except they can't they they can't really rectify it in the way that the Oscars are, because, you know, again, you're dealing with this like completely ridiculous disparity in, <laughs> in like voting body. You know, you've got. Yeah. Well, um, four thousand or more, however many thousands of, of Oscar voters, which they've you know made a very deliberate campaign of in recent years to diversify, whereas you got like 80 or 90 journalists who choose the Globes. Right. And but I'm saying these 80 or 90 journalists who choose who pick make picks for the Globe uh, might change. Um, and so you would hope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they can't stay working forever. I mean, some of them have to die at some point. Right. Or retire. <laughs> So you hope that change does come. Um, I'm not super hopeful and I'm not entirely convinced the Academy has changed because of all the goodwill they did was completely washed away with the Green Book. I, well, I wouldn't say it was washed away, but it definitely took a hit. Yeah, it, it kind of it, you know, it's like two steps forward, one step back kind of situation. Yeah, one big, huge step back. I thought that was such an like an egregious error in judgment. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was, it was I, I was dumbfounded. I will definitely like... Now, hearing the like nonstop like positive praise for Watchmen, I'm definitely going to. Uh, <laughs> now I feel like I built it up too much. Well, may- maybe, maybe yes, maybe no, but uh, I'll I'll <laughs> at least like I at least know that it's it's worthy of like adding to my uh, watch list. You know, it's something that right. I might you know I might have to like make a bigger effort to seek out. Um, yeah, but, definitely give it a chance. But then looking ahead to like uh, the next couple of episodes here on the podcast, of course. Uh, a lot of you will anticipate that our next episode will fall, uh, you know, a few days after the release of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Ooh. So, of course, um, I would say if not a big chunk of that of that next episode, if not, the whole episode will probably be dedicated to that one movie. Um, so if you're not a Star Wars fan, yeah, 
sorry, but not sorry. But you have to listen to it because it's the end of the Skywalker saga. For now, you know, I mean, until like you, you there's no, there's no hard and fast rules in Star Wars. Who, who we talk, <laughs> what are we talking about here? You know, they can, they can go back and if they, if they can delete all of the expanded universe stuff, they can, you know, make up a new rule about however many more Skywalker movies. I, I can guarantee right now that the whole episode will be about Star Wars. Okay, yeah. So just prepare yourself for that. I, I, maybe maybe you're the kind of person who, like, you know, you just love to hear us talk about stuff and you, you don't know anything about Star Wars, but you'll learn a little bit from our total nerd out. Yeah, at um, which point I'm like, do you live under a freaking rock? Like, how can you not know about Star Wars? But we both have very different thoughts about Star Wars, I think, and very different yes. experiences through Star Wars growing up. So I think that'll be a really interesting conversation. So that comes out next week, December 16th. I'm pumped for it. I don't know how. Oh, no, it comes out on the 20th. So it'll oh, 20th, be like sorry. The, yeah, so the episode will will probably be uh, like, if not like the week of Christmas, like maybe the, uh, the uh, last uh, weekend of the year. And uh, then... Getting into January, of course, we'll we'll have had a chance post Star Wars to catch up on uh, some of the the other like uh, soon to be Oscar contenders. Um, hopefully, Jason will have a chance to see Uncut Gems. I'll probably be catching up on a few of the things uh, that I haven't seen yet, and we'll probably be able to pull together like a, a more confident uh, top ten of 2019 uh, ranking for each of us. No. Oh. So we are going to do one then. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't want to sound too confident here because it's going to be hard. I mean, we'll do a top 20. Well, top 20 is a bit like too broad. Top 15 maybe, but I, I don't think it has to be in any specific order. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can agree to that. Yeah. Just this, a list of the top 15 and then maybe we can debate and, and whittle it down to maybe top three or four movies because there's a lot of good films out there and... A lot of them, like The Lighthouse, for example, wasn't very accessible to a lot of viewers. True. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it especially in this time of day and age where like, you know, uh, especially with like a Netflix or an Amazon thing, you know, stuff is harder to see in theaters. And, right. uh, you know, all of these other platforms competing for everyone's attention. You know, some of this stuff can fall between the cracks. So, yeah, it's uh, um, you kind of have to make a bit of a. Uh, Almost like a concerted effort these days to really like track down some of this stuff. Anyway, um, I think this is a good spot to end our episode. Yep. So like we said, look forward to our next episode on Star Wars. But uh, while you're waiting for that, head on over to kinetoscope.ca where we have uh, Jason's review of Knives Out. And we'll be posting uh, more reviews, more content over the course of uh, December, um, as well as the Rise of Skywalker review, which I'm looking forward to writing. And uh, until the next episode, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.